The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. All right, so last week we started our study in Ecclesiastes. A book we said refuses to behave. It's a book that can be really challenging in some ways. And a book that we also said last week is very 2022. Like it, it feels very, very relevant to our particular situation. We're told that the author of this book is the shepherd of God's people. Some translations interpret, uh, the, the word in Hebrew is kohelet. They interpret it often as preacher. The book Ecclesiastes derives its name from the Greek word for gathering, ekklesia, Ecclesiastes. This is a, a preacher who's addressing God's people. And he says that he's coming to burst bubbles. He's coming to break some bad news for you young, naive folks out there. He's, he's coming to shepherd God's people. And often that shepherding looks like having a nail at the end of a goad as he goads us forward. And one of the key insights of this book is that everything, he says, everything is hevel. Everything is vapor. Now the word hevel, he opens in verse 2 of chapter 1 saying, hevel of hevel, all is hevel. Hevel is a Hebrew word that's sometimes translated meaningless, sometimes is translated vanity, but probably the best reading of that word is vapor, that everything is, is vapor. Everything is vapor. He says life is like vapor of vapors. It's a superlative kind of way of describing things. Like, like we talk about Jesus as the king of kings. It's like of all of the kings, Jesus is the kingiest, right? Life is vapor of vapors. Of all of the vaporous things, life is the most vaporous. It's like, imagine if I had a candle up here on stage. And just think about kind of the image of vapor for a second. I had a candle on stage, and I blew off the candle, and that little wisp of smoke that comes kind of floating off the candle. What could you do with that wisp? What if you wanted to reach out and grab it? Is, is there any latching hold of that wisp? Of course not. It's a, it's a wisp. It's a, it's a vapor. It's smoke. And that's the metaphor that the preacher says is how we're to interpret all of life. Everything is vapor. We summed it up with four kind of big ideas last week. First, life is short. Everything and everyone evaporates. Everything and everyone evaporates. We are as substantial as the smoke from a blown out birthday cake. Life is short, he tells us. He also tells us that life refuses to be mastered. There's just no getting a hold of things. In the same way that you can't grab hold of vapor, there's just no grabbing hold of life. In verse 3, he kind of poses this question, which, which sort of frames out his project, let's say, in writing the book. He asks, what gain is there in all of our toil? And all of the stuff that we do, and all the books that we read, and all of the, the cross-fitting that we do, and all, of, and all the stuff that we do, the, the empires and kingdoms we build, the deals that we broker, and all of it, what do we gain in all of our toil? And spoiler alert, he says, nothing. Because at the end of the day, generations come, generations go. And all of us, like naive kids at the beach who resolve to build the world's greatest sandcastle, at, at the end of the day, all of our sandcastles are whisked away by the tide. All is vapor, he says. Life refuses to be mastered. We will be forever left confounded and frustrated by our inability to grab hold of or understand life. Life yields no gains, the third thing. There's no net profit at the end of the day. Naked I come, naked I go, is what Job tells us. And then lastly, the last insight was that life is exhaustingly repetitive. Every day is Groundhog Day. <laughs> Every day is Groundhog Day. Again and again and again. He, in fact, he says, it's so full of weariness, who can utter it? 
I used this uh, example last week. This third grader who was offering their journal reflections on online school. Someone posted this online several months back and I dog-eared it because it was just so brilliant. This is a third grader, you know, existential poet or whatever, writes, boring online school. Today is just another day in a long line of days. Staring at a dumb screen, just boring, boring. Online school, that's the only thing that did happen. It's the only thing that is happening. That's the only thing that will happen. thought, that is a perfect description of the message of the author of Ecclesiastes and the way he experiences life. It's just, it's the only thing that is going to happen. We're just kind of hemmed in by the vapor. And last week we ended on a bit of a dreary note. We said it's good for us to just sort of sit uncomfortably here. To, to, to be pricked by the goad of the shepherd, to be goaded with this nail, and to consider the kind of sober freedom that the vaporousness of life actually grants to us. It's like we're, we're paralyzed by the need to achieve, we're paralyzed by the approval of peers, we're paralyzed at the thought of something bad happening, and it's like, you know what? Something bad is going to happen to you. You will die, and you will die probably sooner than you think you will die. None of us are God, we're all hemmed in under the sun, and all of us are vapor, the greatest to the least of us. And then we concluded church, and we all went out and proceeded with our week on that very happy note. Now this week, the preacher tells us that he's gone on a quest. The preacher says, I've gone on a quest on y'all's behalf. He says he's gone out to discover what gain there is in life. And he says, I'm going to devote myself to this, and there's no obstacle standing in my way. I'm brilliant, I'm wise, I'm rich, I've got literally anything and everything at my disposal. There's no limits to how deep, how far, how wide I can search. What's he going to find? What's the preacher going to find for us? We can take this passage in two parts. We're going to first see his credentials for the quest, and then he's going to offer his conclusion on this quest because he wants to shepherd us. He wants to coach us up as a young group of people. Let's look at verse 12, chapter 3. He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. So first we have the preacher's credentials that he's sort of offering us here. He says, I'm the king, the king over all of Jerusalem. If anyone is going to gain anything, if if anyone's going to transcend the vapor, if anybody's going to leave a mark, is going to have a legacy, it's me, right? I'm the king, after all. I've got all all of the riches and all the resources at my disposal. If anyone can master life and get a hold of things, it's me. I've got wealth and I've got privilege and spades. I've got effectively limitless resources and access to anything and everything. If anybody's going to unlock this, it's me. I've got, I've got the ability and the resources to do it. And so the preacher says, there in verse 13, with all of those resources, he says, I'm going to apply my heart. I'm going to give it 110% effort. I'm going to go and find out what gain there is in life for us. Skip down to verse 16. He says, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Remember, Solomon is renowned in the scriptures for his wisdom. He does some boneheaded things, but we're we're told that Solomon is extremely wise, wise above all of the children of men. Verse 17, and I applied my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. Again, he's got it all. He's got all the wisdom. He's got access to the best books, the wisest sages, all of the the, the resources of knowledge that the world has to offer. He's got time for contemplation. He's got time for reflection. He's got opportunity and riches. 
And he says, I'm going to use everything at my disposal, and I'm going to give it 110%, and I'm going to discover for us what sort of gain there is in life. In fact, what we'll see in chapter 2 is he essentially just teases this out a little bit further. This is kind of a preamble, preamble to what he's going to talk about he does in chapter 2. In chapter 2, we might say that he devotes himself to three things, wine, wisdom, and work. He's going he's to plumb the depths of all three of those. Pleasure, it's like I got, I got access to everything pleasurable you can think of. I'm going to go look for gain, some, something lasting and substantial. I'm going to go look for it there. I'm going to dive deep into my, into my studies, and into my, my, my uh, understandings of the inner workings of God's world. I'm going to dive deep into that. He says, I'm going to dive deep into work. I'm going to build outright empires for myself. And I'm going to go see if there's any gain that can be had there. Preach his credentials, he tells us. He's the great, wise king. Surely, if anyone's going to figure this out, it's him, right? Who better than the preacher to explore every contour and nook and cranny of life? I volunteer as tribute, he says, for us. I'm going to go explore this and report back to you my findings. So the preacher goes on a deep dive. He plums the depths of human experience. And then he comes back to the surface. And he comes, in, he comes to report to us what he's found. He's, there's no obstacles, there's nothing standing in his way. He's got everything available to him. He's, he's going to figure this out for us. He takes a deep breath. He prepares to tell us all that he's found. We, his eager listeners, we wait with bated breath. Tell us, O oh wise king, enlighten us. Tell us, where, where are we to find gain in life? Give us your wisdom. What have you concluded about our lives and our toil and the possibility of some kind of gain? The preacher's conclusion. You ready? 13b, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. It is an unhappy business. It's his conclusion. I, the king, with wisdom, riches, might, power, access to the highest heights and the lowest lows, report back to you, it's an unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. It says in verse 14, I have seen everything that is done under the sun. I've seen everything. I've, I've seen, I, there, there's no obstacle standing in my way. I've seen everything that is to be done under the sun. And behold, listen, pay attention. All is vanity and striving after wind. The preacher's conclusion, verses 13b and 17, 18, we'll see this in a moment. It's all striving after wind. What a great word picture. Verse 2, he tells us that everything is vapor, and then he adds to the metaphor here in verse 14. All is vapor, and all is striving after wind. But imagine after worship tonight, I say, you and I are going to go into the parking lot. We're going to go wait on the wind to blow, which... You know, the wind, who can tell when the wind is going to blow? Like, it's comings and goings. Nobody has access to that information, you know? We, we could be waiting hours, minutes, days, you know, months, weeks, whatever. We're going to go wait on the wind to blow. And then, Mikey, this is what I'll tell you. Then, after the wind starts blowing, you and me, we're going to go get in a headlock. We're going to hogtie it, and we're going to get our hands on the wind, right? If I told you that, you would, you would say, that's complete madness. Like, it is impossible to think you could hogtie the breeze, like striving after the wind is like the definition of nonsense. That's precisely what the preacher says the pursuit of some kind of gain or purchase on life is like. Trying to hogtie the breeze. All of our efforts, 
all of our work, all of our kingdom building, at the end of the day, it's vapor. It's striving after wind. What's striking to me also is that he tells us in verse 13 that all of this is an unhappy business. What, what, a, what, a, what a phrase to describe life, an unhappy business, verse 13. But what's really striking to me is it says that it's an unhappy business from God, that we've been given an unhappy business by God himself. It's like when I read that, I mean, I might be tempted to, to think that the scriptures are saying that an unhappy, sort of flat, repetitive, you know, boring life is from the hand of God. I mean, is, is that what the author is saying here? Has it, has it always been this way? Is this sort of God's intention for us? And I think what we'd say is if you go back to uh, Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, where you see the beginning of the story, at the very beginning of the story, before anything bad happens, we see that God creates a good world, a solid world, let's say, full of solid joys, full of uh, uh, access to God himself. It's a world unspoiled by human sin, by human selfishness, by evil, and by death. But what happens when the first man and the first woman ultimately choose to rebel from God's word? The result is they introduce vaporousness, the unhappy business, well, into everything. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, after Adam and Eve have sinned, this is the Lord's word to Adam, the curse that he places on Adam. I have it on the screen. And to Adam, the Lord said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. I think the image of the scriptures here is that because of man's rebellion, there's a, there's, a, there's a kind of casting into futility and frustration that is the result. That we've been cursed based on our rebellion. So I think when we read verse 13 and it says that there's an unhappy business from God, I think what he's alluding to is the curse that God has placed on all of our efforts and all of our striving since the very beginning. If you notice in these verses, I mean, it's, it's such vivid imagery. It says that in, uh, it thorns and thistles, the ground will bring forth for you. It's like before the fall, before everything went south, the ground freely yielded. It's like imagine that. Like the earth just gave us grapes, and it was like no, not, no sweat, no trouble. It was just grapes were come, you know, yielding freely. But after the fall, it says we eat of these things by the sweat of our brow. Work is now difficult. There's thorns and thistles that are mixed in with, the, with what used to be sort of this bountiful yield prior to that. But now everything is cursed. Everything is characterized by pain. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat. And then he says, you're going to eat by the sweat of your brow until you return to the dust from which you came. I think the author of Ecclesiastes is very much kind of drawing on this curse that was given in Genesis 3 as an explanation for why everything feels the way that it does. Why it feels like an unhappy business. Why everything feels like vapor. Why those of us you came from dust, will one day return to dust. It's a result of the fall. Futility and frustration are the name of the game. The ground is cursed. In pain you shall eat of it. And at the end of it all, to dust you'll return. And that's exactly what the preacher concludes here. All of it is vapor. It's shepherding the wind. The preacher concludes from his quest that if we're to find to devote our full selves to, to finding some kind of gain or profit in life, what we'll find at the end of the rope is a striving after 
wind. Verse 15, he issues this little poetic thought. He says, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Things are broken beyond repair this side of the fall, beyond our ability to repair. This side of the fall, this side of the fall, and this side of Jesus' return. Things are crooked and incapable of being straightened out. There's just no perfecting things in this state. It's just the, the way things are now. But maybe we hear that. Maybe we hear a preacher sort of offering us these findings, and we think, okay, you told us that you were going to pursue wisdom, that you were going to explore and plumb the depths of wisdom, madness, and folly. The pursuit of wisdom, surely there's some kind of gain in that, right? Like, if we devote ourselves to wisdom, surely, you know, we understand, like, the empires and kingdoms we build, it's going to be ground to dust, right? But wisdom, I mean, there's, there's, this is wisdom literature. Surely that gets us somewhere, some, some leverage over the vapor, right? Verse 17a, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceived that this also is but striving after wind. And then I love verse 18. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Even wisdom, he tells us, is striving after wind. It's like going to the parking lot and trying to hogtie the breeze. Not even wisdom is a solution to Hevel. In fact, he tells us, it only deepens our awareness of Hevel. It's like if you get a line graph and you take wisdom and vexation and you place both of them on a line graph. They're both going to increase simultaneously, is what he says. With, with much wisdom is much vexation. They are directly proportional in mathematical terms, he tells us. And I think it's important for us to not move too quickly past this. Because we might have the tendency to think that what the author is trying to do is to give us six easy steps on how to make life feel less vaporous. If you just do these things, life is going to feel less vaporous. And I think what he's saying here by saying not even wisdom sort of eliminates the feeling of vaporous, is you're not going to get past the fact that life is vapor. Like, even, even growing in wisdom about the vaporousness of life is just going to aggravate the ordeal. You're not going to overcome the vaporousness of things this side of eternity. There's no three simple hacks or five, five easy steps to, to relieve the burden of the vapor. So I think that means our first takeaway in this scripture tonight is this, that you and I must accept the vaporousness of our lives. We must accept the vaporousness of our lives. We are hemmed in by vapor. The language he uses in the previous section is that we're under the sun. We said last week that it's sort of a under the sun. It's like a, even think about how, the, how we kind of use a spatial terminology to kind of describe our experience. It's like dampened down. There's a ceiling on things. We're in this closed system. We're enclosed under the sun. And there's just no escaping the reality of our kind of being trapped under the sun and the vaporousness of life. There's no escaping it. Not even wisdom can make that so. Not even wisdom can relieve the burden of vapor. So what are our options? Well, we could think that we're the exception. We could, we could read the author of Ecclesiastes and think, you know, that's great that that's your experience, but I'm different. I was, I was kind of reflecting on my tendency to do exactly that, to think I'm the exception to everything. I was thinking about, I don't know, pretty much at every stage of my life before I went on kind of a, a new venture, um, marrying Emily or beginning the process of planting a church, I'd always have these wise older brothers that would say, no, you're going to experience this, and you're going to experience this, and you're going to experience this. And my tendency is always to say, yeah, 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 I, I get that. 
but you don't know me. You don't know how gifted I am. You don't know how wise beyond my years I am. You don't know how deep Emily and I's relationship already is. It's like, I'm, I'm sure that's the case for your normal counselees, but for us, we've got this figured out. I remember one thing in particular in the church planting classes, they tell you by X date in the life of the church plant, you can expect about 60% of your original planting team to not be there. And I remember scoffing at that. And you know what, was, you know what happened? By X date, about 60% of our planting team was no longer, because I'm the fool who thinks he's the exception to everything. And that's what we could do as we read Ecclesiastes. We could think, yeah, we, we get you, Mr. Depressed Preacher Coelette. We understand but I'm the exception. Your rules don't apply to me. Surely, and I say all of that jokingly, surely it's not just me who has a tendency to think they're the exception. Or maybe I'm exceptionally, exceptional at thinking I'm the exception, which is also a possibility. We're very proud of all of the things that we are and that we do. We have exceptional moral clarity that far exceeds previous generations. We have accomplishments that far exceed those previous generations. But we aren't exceptions. There is nothing new under the sun. The preacher had all the resources. He had everything, and he goes on this recon mission for us, and he reports back to us his findings as a favor. And he says, listen, it's all hevel. All of it is vapor. There's no escaping the vaporousness of life. We all die, every one of us, the most gifted to the least. All of our accomplishments will be carried off like sandcastles. Now, let me say here just briefly, what the author of Ecclesiastes isn't saying, he's not encouraging us towards like a kind of nihilistic despair. He's, he's, not, uh, he's not contradicting what the Proverbs tell us when they say things like, you know, it's, it's good to be frugal and it's good to save money and it's, you know, it's, it's good to live life skillfully in these ways. He's not contradicting those things. I think rather what the author of Ecclesiastes is saying is like, let's just acknowledge the limits of where that gets us. Like those things are good and we should pursue those things, but just don't expect to find substance there. Don't expect to find the fullness of life there because everything is hevel. It's all vapor. So we got to humble ourselves and realize that I am subject to this. He had wealth, power, riches, wisdom. And none of this gave him any kind of leverage, no kind of angle on the vaporousness of life. So an important question for us at this point would be to ask ourselves, how do I assume I am the exception? In what ways am I trying to get an angle on the vapor, like I'm above or beyond it? In what ways am I building or, or investing in things as if those things were eternal? In what ways am I giving myself over to things as if those things weren't hevel? How am I trying to get an angle or sort of escape the vapor? We can assume that we're the exception. I think another option, another response to this is we can just frankly rage against the vapor. You know, rage against it, rage against it, old man shakes fist at cloud kind of response, right? We can live bitterly as if life's futility and, and kind of its evasiveness gives us some justification for just being ticked, just being bitter. That's one response to the vapor. Or we could distract from it. We could distract from the fact that we are, all of us are terminally ill, that all of us and all of our accomplishments are vapor. We could distract ourselves from it and we have endless distractions at our disposal. Uh, there's a philosopher named Peter Kreeft, and he said it's like we live in a house with a giant rhinoceros, which would be our own mortality, that are covered with a million mice. We have endless diversions. It's like we, we, can, we can never, ever, ever, ever have to be alone with our thoughts, ever, if we didn't want to be, right? 
There's a comedian who talks about this one time. He was listening to a Bruce Springsteen song driving down the interstate, and it made him sad. And he said he, he started to feel sad. And so what did he instantly do? He turned on like a podcast that was talking about something else so he would avoid having to feel sad. It's like we never actually have to feel anything if we don't want to. We never actually have to pay attention to our mortality if we don't want to. We never have to sit in the quiet of our own soul if we don't want to. And I think the author of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, would have us to see, you know, it is good for us to consider and to name that everything is vapor. I was reading a book this week where the author suggested that the reason we hate boredom is it reminds us of our finiteness. Boredom isn't just unpleasant, it's a deeply disturbing reminder that I'm not limitless, that I'm not God, and one day I will die. And we have never been able, more able to drown that out with millions of mice like we can today. The only option is for us to just name and accept our situation, all this vapor. There's no escaping this. We need to see and learn that all is hevel, especially in our youth. We are a young church. We, we are an, uh, an, an uncharacteristically young church. It's a huge blessing. But that means that we are still optimistic and naive. We've not been ground down by life just yet. Let's heed the wisdom of the preacher of Ecclesiastes. There's only one who isn't subject to vapor. Only one who is immortal. Only one who is not confined under the sun. Whose vision isn't clouded by the mist. And we aren't him. So an important question for us is, how much of our lives and our attempts to control and assure that we have peace, comfortable, safe outcomes, our planning and building, how much, how much of it is rooted in a, an unwillingness to accept the fact that all is vapor? How much of it might be a God complex that thinks I'm exempt from this, that I'm going to be around forever, that I have a name and an image to build for myself? It's a recipe for disaster. There is no gain. Generations come and go, and we will return to dust. Psalm 90, the psalmist says, verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. God, show us that we are hevel to make us wise and help us never assume, help us to never assume that we can escape this, that we can overcome hevel. Teach us to number our days so that we can bear up under it but there's good news here also, I think. A glimmer of light here. Our second takeaway this evening. We must let the unhappy business drive us to God. I read an article recently that talked about uh, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors. I've done really good at not referencing Lewis for several weeks, you guys. I just want to acknowledge that. Talk about C.S. Lewis, and he's famous for his argument, uh, arguments for the existence of God that kind of make this move where he says... The fact that we experience the defect of, of a thing, the fact that we experience it as a defect, suggests that there's a perfect form of that thing out there somewhere. So it says, like, we, we thirst and we hunger because there's water and there's food. And he famously said that if we have a desire for another world, which isn't satisfied in this world, surely that means there's another world that exists out there. The defect points to the existence of the perfect. And the author of the article, talking about futility and frustration and the vaporousness of life, he said, could it be the case here that as we read Ecclesiastes and as we reflect on our experience of the world as vaporous, as unhappy business, as, as fallen and futile and frustrating, it, could it be that because it, like, like everybody in their bones knows that this is the case, that something is wrong with the world, that we experience futility as futility, 
and we're frustrated by it. He said, the fact that we struggle against it as if we were built for a world and a life that isn't Hevel, could it actually be just because we were built for a world that isn't? Could that ache, that conviction that we were built for a world more solid than this one, actually suggest that God did make us for a life beyond this life? Could God be inviting us to himself through futility? That's what he says in that article. Rather than run from God out of a sense of futility, perhaps we might see in that sense of futility an invitation to come home. Perhaps our sense of futility is simply one more manifestation that God has indeed made us for himself and that our hearts are restless until they rest in him. We'll see the author of Ecclesiastes make that very same invitation as the book progresses. But could our experience of vaporousness and the impermanence of things and the futility, the frustration of life, could that invite us to the God who isn't vapor, to the God who isn't in, uh, uh, impossible to grasp, impossible to know. Psalm 39, I love how Psalm 39 sort of captures that idea for us. Psalm 39, verse 4, I have it on the screen. Psalmist says, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. It's the, the same prayer from Psalm 90. Let me know how fleeting I am. Memento mori. Help me remember that I'm going to die one day. Behold, you have made my days a few, a few handbreadths. A few handbreadths. My, my days are very short. And my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. This is not in the screen, but in your scriptures, it'll say Selah right there. It separates verses 5 and 6 with the word Selah. If you know Selah, it's a little bit of a mysterious word that exists in the, in the, the Psalms. It's probably intended to be a, a, a time for the, the, the singers of the psalm to take a breath. And I love where it's positioned. It says, surely all mankind stands as a mere breath, Selah. It's like what the poet wants us to do is to say, surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Whew. All mankind stands as that. Verse 6, surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. We're going to get rich and our kids could be buffoons. We have no idea. There is no guaranteeing this. Verse 7, and now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. So what else is left for us to do? but to embrace the vaporousness of life. There's no escaping this. But in embracing the vaporousness of life, let us see and, and find ourselves at rest in the one who isn't subject to vapor, who isn't confined under the sun. The one who isn't subject to decay. The only one who is immovable, fixed, certain, and sure. The Lord Jesus. The gospel is the good news that Jesus entered into our futility and in our frustration by, by adopting a human life and by living in righteousness and by dying a death that we deserved, he's raised to a new permanent life that he then turns and invites us to, to follow after him and to know and enjoy that same permanent, solid life. In the beginning, God made a good world. In the fall, we rebelled. We introduced sin. We're cursed with the unhappy business of reaping with broken backs and sweaty brows until we return to dust. But of course, the God who is behind this good world wouldn't allow corruption to win the day because in Christ we are offered redemption. 
God comes to us, sends his son, Jesus, to take on our humanity, to live a sinless good life, to bear our curse in order that we could be restored to God and be restored to, to knowing and enjoying and living life with God. And we receive this, not by gaining. We, we don't receive this forever life by anything we do. We receive it as gift by faith. This doesn't fix our experience of heaven. This isn't give us an angle on the heaven, but it does sustain us in the dark, frustrating days of 2022 and beyond. The next few moments, we're going to sing Ancient of Days. Um, Ancient of Days in the chorus that celebrates that there is none above, beyond, before God Almighty. That he holds it all in his hands and that we can express our belief that he will sustain us even in the experience of the things that this side of eternity madden and shock us. That we can with confidence turn to him and trust that he is sure and that he is strong that he sees and he knows our weakness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we consider the message of Ecclesiastes, And as we think on the, the vaporousness of everything, we pray like the psalmist that, that even looking directly at those things, we would still say, in a, in a courageous move of hope, my hope is in you. My confidence is not on things under the sun. My confidence is the one who is above and beyond all of it. We pray that we would see the vaporousness as an invitation to know and to hope in you. And that the frustration we feel against it, we pray that it, that it would turn us to you and trust. We thank you that in Christ we have a hope that goes beyond death. And we thank you that Christ bore our sin and our sorrows that when we look to Christ, we see our brother and our friend. And we pray tonight as we continue our time of worship that you would sustain and strengthen us. And for, for many of us in this room who are bearing up under hard, hard, hard things, we pray, Lord Jesus, for strength. Pray for any friends in our midst who have not yet believed. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open their eyes to see the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of Jesus. And I pray that our church would be a church that's characterized by hope and the good news of the gospel and an eagerness to share and to love others who are walking through the implications and the meaning of that. We love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.